Hi, George Lavender here. Just a reminder that if you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and clicking on the big donate button. And if you haven't done so already, you can also rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks a lot. Here's the show. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this is Making Contact. On this edition, we bring you to Alaska's Tongass Forest, where the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act turned tribes into corporations and sparked a lengthy logging frenzy. In this radio adaptation of the documentary film Walking in Two Worlds, we meet a Tlingit brother and sister who are trying to heal both the forest and their native community. History began about 12 to 15,000 years ago. It's the Ice Age. It's such a long story. But from the time our children are seven years old, our people knows it's when they can remember things good. So they start telling the Glacier Bay history. Whole Alaska God gave to us. It's because he wanted it that way. We believe it. Our people believe this. Our family said, don't lose your land. They always say, this is your land. We have taught all of our children this is our homeland. This is where the spirits of our ancestors roam. This is where I know that I'm going to have a continued presence. To outsiders, this land is best known as the Tongass National Forest. With 17 million acres of wilderness and 11,000 miles of coastline, it's the largest temperate rainforest on Earth. It's home to the Tlingit, as well as the Haida and Simshian people. The Clinket people have a word called Ha'ani, which means our land. We have lived in this land for over 10,000 years. We defended it. We use the land, we use the animals, the water and the sea to sustain our lives. We will always live here. Mom was a full-blooded Tlingit woman. She made sure we each knew that we're Eagle Chukanedi, Brown Bear, people of Glacier Bay. Know who you are and where you come from. Raised by their mother, Bob Losher and his sister Wanda Culp grew up moving back and forth between the state capital, Juneau, and their ancestral village, Huna. My brother Bob and I, he's 14 months older than I am. Good to see you, And when we were small children, my mom said it was like raising twins. In order to keep us together and in control when we were in public, we were always holding hands. We were that close. Growing up in Juneau, was a mixed bag. There was no Tlingit history or culture in the schools. Our parents 
and grandparents were disciplined for speaking their language. And our grandfather was a, a, a carver. Our mom didn't teach us the language. She didn't want us to be shamed. That was what she instilled in us a lot. Last potlatch, they gave us back uh, Grandpa's mallet. I think this is Grandpa. He's standing by a totem pole. That... At the same time, she wanted us to fit in. She wanted us to be successful and worked real hard to get us into the mainstream. I had a very exciting life uh, as a young man. I fished and hunted and I climbed all these mountains and saw all the glaciers here and and I lived a real good life. Wanda graduated from high school, married, and began working for the tribal government. Bob went to college in Colorado, earning a degree in economics and business. When he returned to Alaska, he began putting what he'd learned to use. I believe my sister and I have had the opportunity to live in two worlds. We got to live in a non-native community world and go to an education and grow up in a different kind of a society, but not so far removed from our traditional villages where we've gone back and forth and our family and our blood is very close to our people. One time, this whole area was filled with wild birds, ducks, geese, and the salmon. You could just see it, just see it coming in. You knew it was coming in. All the place was full of life. The air, the water, the land, all full of life. We had everything we needed. To make a good living, we were rich after the first colonization, first by the Russians and then the Americans. We became an oppressed people. We didn't have the right to vote. We had to go to inferior schools. We were second-class citizens. In 1902, President Theodore Roosevelt created the National Park and Forest System. He established the Tongass National Forest in 1907. Congress recognized that we had aboriginal land rights, but at the same time, they started to give rights to others to take our land. The creation of the Tongass Forest was one such example. We lost control of our land. This is Alaska. Uncle Sam's largest national forest, the Tongass, occupies the eastern section. Here grow managed forests old trees ready for the harvest, and young ones growing for future crops. Here, we sometimes find a deserted Indian village, almost lost in the tangled forest. The Forest Service were instructed to remove the people from the villages. And after the villages were abandoned, as the word they use, the longhouses, totem poles were burnt down. The Forest Service had started moving our people out of our summer camps throughout the region and burning down our smokehouses and our cabins and destroying our gardens that we had out in our summer camps. 
and asking us not to go back to those places anymore because we were not welcome. And that disrupted our whole way of life that is tied to our hunting, fishing, harvesting in traditional customary ways that had been done for thousands of years. And the hurt, the hurt that occurred was long lasting. Native claims to their land and resources were not resolved when Alaska became a state in 1959. It took a major oil discovery in the Arctic to trigger federal action. In 1971, President Richard Nixon signed the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, or ANCSA, into law. Ladies and gentlemen of the AFM, this is the White House in Washington calling. I present the President of the United States. I appreciate this opportunity to extend my greetings and best wishes to the Convention of the Alaska Federation of Navies. I want you to be among the first to know that I have just signed the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. This is a milestone in Alaska's history, and in the way our government deals with Native and Indian peoples, it shows that institutions of government are responsive. Instead of tribal reservations, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act created a native corporation for each of 13 regions and more than 200 local villages. Together, these corporations received title to 44 million acres, as well as $970 million. Through that act, we in Southeast Alaska established Sea Alaska Corporation. We received authorization to select up to 700,000 acres of land. ANCSA promised both economic development and cultural preservation. It required that individual natives become shareholders in their tribal corporations. Clinkets aren't corporations. Clinkets are people. Clinkets are a clan. Clinkets are a tribe. Clinkets are ravens and eagles. We're not an entity. We should not have to be driven by a dollar sign. When our elders heard that Anska was coming, there was somebody that said, uh-oh, uh-oh, money's involved. It's going to hurt our people. I was driving up on Huna Mountain and ran across a relative of mine, her and her husband, were just coming back down, and they had seen the first clear cut back there. And she was like, oh. she was crying. You see what they're doing to us? Do you see what they're doing to us? To this day, I think of her, because we had no idea, no idea just what it would do to us. When the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, or ANCSA, was passed, there were headlines in every newspaper and news outlet in Alaska, natives to get billions, natives to get millions of acres of land. There was tremendous pressure to use our land assets for economic development purposes. 
According to ANCSA, anyone with a quarter or more of Southeast Alaska native blood became shareholders in Sea Alaska Corporation. One week we were just regular guys at the cannery, and the next week we were members of the board of directors of Sea Alaska Corporation. We had thousands of shareholders enrolled and each having stock 100 shares, and their expectations were very, very high. The economic opportunities at that time were primarily timber. And so most of the corporations selected lands for that purpose. And the big word then was it's per capita. We're going to get money per capita. I, I didn't know what per capita meant, but it sure sounded good. We made the decision that we were going to go into the harvesting, uh, road building, and marketing uh, on an export basis. Uh, our timber. And so we trained our people. We put them in logging companies, road building companies, and we created employment. It was literally being thrown into the deep end of the pool of capitalism. We had a strong sense of who we were as native people. We had no sense at all as to what it meant to be in business or to look at land as a fungible asset. It was a time of enormous change for all Tlingit natives. For Bob and Wanda, the passage of Anxa marked the moment when their lives began to move in opposite directions. Wanda left her government job in Juneau and turned to a subsistence way of life in her ancestral village. I came here to Huna. I, I yanked my kids up and moved over here and removed myself from Juneau and a lot of other things that kept me unbalanced. I was excited to be a part of the new uh, Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act and help to implement that on behalf of the Tlingit Haida people. I joined Sea Alaska Corporation as their land manager. And then over the years, I evolved to senior vice president and executive vice president. And finally, after 25 years uh, as a president chief executive officer, there was a new paradigm that we had to work with. It was the profit motive, totally different way of thinking than our people had done in the traditional way. Congress did not provide us the necessary capital to operate the company initially and to provide for our tribal shareholders in the manner that they expected. So we ended up having to log our lands in order to make cash, provide for the operation and funding of the corporations. Bob was executive vice president of Sea Alaska when it began clear-cutting in 1980. When Sea Alaska began its timber harvesting and sales, we did it the way everybody else was doing it. We impacted our streams, lakes, and rivers, our shorelines, and all of the things that we have customarily and traditionally, culturally relied upon to sustain our, our communities and provide for our food. There was absolutely no laws to protect any living thing. They were allowed to log down to the edge of the river. 
I already had been opposing the Forest Service login to find out that the Forest Service was actually minimal compared to what devastation our own corporations brought on us. They hurt us. This whole bay right here was discolored from what was coming down that creek. The mud just comes down out of there, and the, the hatchery people panic because their filters on the water coming into the hatchery, they have to change every hour, or else the fish would suffocate. That watershed has changed completely because of the amount of minerals flowing out of there. New restrictions on hunting and fishing directly challenge traditional Tlingit customs and practices. The state had a rule saying that the native person could get a permit for 15 fish per family per year. Now that's ridiculous. That's what ANSCA has done to us. It has alienated us from our land. You're listening to Making Contact. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now let's hear some more of Walking in Two Worlds, a documentary film produced by Bo Budar and Wanda Colt. What a dirty, rotten thing to do to us, turn our lands into corporate lands. It makes politicians out of us rather than brothers and sisters. We didn't have the power to fight it. You know what it takes to fight it? Money. They made sure we're poor, but we still fight it anyway. Wanda Culp and I pounded the streets. We even knocked door to door. We had meeting after meeting. I became what is known as a radical. I would write letters uh, to my God and everybody list, starting from Washington, D.C., to the state capitol, to our corporations, to our tribal governments, letting them know that we exist and that we are a living culture and not to stamp us out like we're not here. My mom never did understand how I could move from Juneau in the middle of a, a career to learn how to hunt, fish, and gather. She did understand my brother, so I had to be careful, really careful, how I presented myself to see Alaska that way because I didn't want my mother's wrath on me. <laughs> As I became politically verbose, he was already involved in politics and he was born into it, and I became aware of it through adversity, I think. Alaska um, Corporation instigated all of the logging around the villages in southeast Alaska. I would write some very hard letters to the board. At one point, they asked Bob, can't you stop her? Can't you do something about her? Bob looked at him and said, you? That was the end of that. I was very much aware of people's views, including my sister, her views because she was living in the community, a rural community of Huna. And Huna was a large harvest area. 
primarily a spruce timber. Very, very valuable product. And many, many people in Huna would be employed by the work there. There was still a huge fishing fleet, and there were still people living off the land in terms of hunting, fishing, and harvesting of natural resources. And the impacts were occurring, and I was aware that those impacts were occurring. And uh, we were doing the best we could to diminish the impacts and not log in areas that were uh, traditionally used by the people and try to protect as much as we could, but we did log. And uh, it had huge impact on the communities. I never did talk privately to my brother about any of this. There was just a time when our family kind of split in different directions and we weren't that close anymore. Wanda and other traditional Tlingit were not alone. Conservationists spent decades fighting the logging frenzy. Even the tourism industry played a role. Over a million people visit the Tongas every year, mostly by ship. When passengers began complaining about ugly scars left by clear-cutting, the cruise lines threatened to stop bringing passengers to the Tongas. In 1990, the Tongas Timber Reform Act scaled back logging in favor of fish and wildlife protection. But by that time, nearly a half million acres had been logged, about one-third of all the old-growth trees. That old-growth forest isn't going to take place again in those areas for about 250 years. People like to say, well, the trees grow back. Well, they do, but not in this lifetime, and not in our children's lifetime, and not in our grandchildren's lifetime. Good to hear from you. Going to Angoon today, talking about With the, the life my brother chose to live, he was, he was living very richly. So he played hard, and he worked hard. He was a workaholic. We did business all over the world. Japan, Russia, Korea, China, Europe. I had heard my brother had diabetes, and it started getting worse, and then it came to the point where he had to have dialysis. My brother was in Angoon, the village of Angoon, making a presentation when his eyesight gave out. And that is a direct result of the diabetes. When he lost his eyesight, that's when Sea Alaska did something illegal, and that's fired him. They like to say he's retired, but they fired him. He dedicated his life. Oh, I mean dedicated his life. As much as I dedicated my life to my freedom and, and living out on the land and, the, and on the water, he dedicated it to see Alaska and making the corporation what it is. And they just tossed him away. I found a letter on the counter that said he needed a kidney transplant. 
So see, nobody says anything in our family to each other at that time. It was so horrifying that we didn't talk about it. But the letter was there and it was like, oh my God. And it was like, Bob, I'm gonna give you a kidney. It brought us very close, especially on the eve of the transplant. I told him that I loved him and that once we join our strength, our forces together, that we'll make it. Wanda gave me a kidney and it basically saved my life. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here today. And I have made a rule that I will try to do one good thing every day for the rest of my life. And so her giving me that kidney has afforded me that opportunity to try to do good things. As a businessman, I was focused on production. Later, I became very concerned about the quality of life that we had left behind as a result of those operations. It was totally different than our cultural training that we've had forever from our uncles and our grandfathers and our grandmothers. It was a moment in time that we had to move forward to meet the needs of our people. We were thought we were doing the right thing, but we didn't deal with the other elements of our way of life. It's been quite an interesting time, and I've had a lot of people who have given me a laugh and a chuckle when they find out that my kidney came from my <laughs> sister, who was a greenie, an environmentalist activist, and I was an industrialist uh, timber <laughs> harvester, and. The Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act did split us up, not as a family, but as the directions we take in life. And it did put my brother in a bad spot. I never, ever attacked him personally. I think as time goes on, I've, I've, uh, I've come halfway uh, to her position, and she has not gone one inch in my direction. A lot of times I was called a troublemaker. I don't know how it evolved from troublemaker to activist, but I kind of like that one better. Still waiting for you to come on by. <laughs> her and I hardly ever talked during those times. She would express her opinions in the press and, and in public speeches, and I had to endure it as time went on. But I had a mission, and then she had a mission, and I think maybe she was probably more right than I was. Now I'm into green energy, and I, <laughs> I'm into uh, mariculture and fish uh, farming development and, you know, trying to uh, promote uh, peace in the valley with the environmental community and the conservation community, with uh, the native community. And uh, so Wanda and I begin to collaborate on a few of these things and, and uh, some of it's starting to have impact. can't put monetary value on our existence. Everywhere you look, 
every land point, every mountain, every bay has a Klingit name attached to it. It has a history. Now, every place we gather our food and fish and hunt, our people have been there. We've done that. The places that we bury our people and the celebrations that we've held, there's no comparison between the history of our people of 10,000 years and 39 years of corporation. We are still here. We are a part of the Tongass Forest, and we're going to be here forever. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. You've been listening to Walking in Two Worlds, a documentary film produced by Bo Budar and Wanda Culp. Special thanks to Specialty Studios. To see the trailer or learn more about the film, go to walkingintwoworlds.com or check out our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcast, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.